0: Be part of an innovative fine arts community immersed in a top research university. Carnegie Mellon University's School of Music's world-class vocal department constantly works at the cutting edge of musical art forms. CMU performance faculty are creating projects that leverage musicians' skill sets in unique and applicable ways. Students are challenged to think outside the box as they engage with non-traditional performance spaces, collaboration with electronics, and improvisation, alongside a robust program of traditional studies, languages, recitals, and operas. To learn more about Carnegie Mellon University and to apply, visit the link in the show notes of this episode. So,
1: so, so lit.
2: This is So Lit! Songlit, a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. Where we reimagine the repertoire by introducing less familiar art songs through sound clips and lively discussion. I'm vocal coach Ellen Rissinger. I'm soprano Tony Marie Palmertree.
3: And I'm tenor Zachary Dean Smith.
0: Join us as we explore this exciting repertoire. Solid, solid, reimagining the repertoire. This week is going to be slightly different, especially for me, because as the Diction Police, one language that we never covered was Polish. (laughs) So first of all, before we ever get into any of Karol Szymanowski's music, I want to send a huge thank you to Mark Trofka at the Pittsburgh Opera for giving us a crash course in how to pronounce songs in Polish. Mm. (laughs) Thankfully, Szymanowski has... Some songs also in German, so I was feeling very at home with that. Mm -hmm. And he has a vocalese that we're going to talk about today, so we didn't even have to worry about words. But... What do we need to know about Szymanowski before we start looking at his music? Zach? Well, I'm
3: glad you brought up the bit about languages, because as a Polish composer, and I believe this was somewhat standard at the time, he actually set most of his songs in, I believe, German, Polish, and French, just in the default version, which makes a lot of them more approachable for people who don't know the Polish languages. So, Karol Szymanowski was a uh, Polish composer of... Mm, some renown in Poland his music was reasonably well received but it also was exceedingly modern and so obviously
0: there would have been a little bit of difficulty in the reception so one second you're saying modern his dates just so we're thinking of the time period is 1882 to 1937
3: which is actually quite important to the development of his style, because his early music, as we will hear, is very much German Romantic, sort of big, a little strain from traditional tonality, but nothing terribly weird. Right. Um, but as it goes on, oh boy, does it get does it get funky? <laughs> <laughs> the reason I wanted to bring him up on this season in particular is because he is another queer composer who uh, discovered this. On a uh, cruise to Sicily. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. So he went to Greece and uh, saw those Greek men and said, oh. Been
0: there, done that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then.
3: (laughs) No, in the late... In the late 1910s, uh, early 1920s, he went on a, uh, what I would call a cruise with several other uh, composers of the time period, which is when he sort of came to a realization about himself, which uh, you can see so clearly in his opera Croix Roger, um, or King Roger. It's an opera about an a older king who falls in love with this young sort of wild shepherd who comes into the court and shakes everything up. And by the end of it, the uh, King Rogers has this huge gay awakening to um, a almost derivatively Wagnerian uh, swell of music as he has found his y- his l- true love in this young shepherd boy.
0: I mean, in the 1920s to be composing something like that? yeah.
3: Wow. It's a wonderful opera that I'm kind of shocked isn't done more, except for the fact that it does sound so much like Wagner, and Polish is a challenge for a lot of singers.
0: Yeah. For anybody who's interested, there is a book called Singing in Polish in the same series of Singing in Czech and Singing in Greek. So if you're interested in Polish, there is a way to learn Polish.
3: Mm -hmm. But along with the uh, small selection of operas he did, he wrote a lot of vocal music, I want to say like forty some collections of at least three songs each. He was writing a huge amount of vocal music as well, and as I said, you can see it span his entire career as his style changes. Yeah. Um, especially in this first piece um, that we recorded called "The Swan," or "La Bege "La Bege "La Beige." La Beige. La Beige. La Beige. La Beige.
0: <laughs> first things first in Polish the L with the slash is a W. <laughs>
3: um but no this piece is so conventionally sort of dark and a little bit brooding in a way that wouldn't make it out of place for much of the music being composed in uh, you know late 1800s Germany.
0: Exactly. I mean really there's a lot of I, I almost want to say it feels like a Schubert song. Mm-hmm. So it even feels a-, a little earlier to my ears, but it is very dark. It's an E flat minor, which is very unusual Mm -hmm. and it is very this one does feel lugubrious but it also has a lightness to the vocal line
3: ending to this whole piece where it fully ends on a half cadence and then nothing. Nothing after that full, entirely final half cadence, which is appropriate for a, well, a swan
0: song as it was. Exactly. Leave mm-hmm. us wanting more. Mm-hmm. If we're gonna keep talking about his music in order, the next piece we have is Nakshanji Charnim. I apologize to all of our Polish listeners. <laughs> this is from his Opus 20. And this, it gets... I want to say this is Rachmaninoff-ish. Mm-hmm. This feels, when I'm playing it, feels like Rachmaninoff. The chords are huge mm-hmm. and they're beautiful, but still quite tonal. Chromatic, but tonal.
3: Exceedingly chromatic, yeah. This is where he, you can hear him start to play with uh, the limits of what tonality can do to a degree, he is playing around with a lot of half-step lines that slowly descend until we finally land in a place that feels stable.
0: You're singing it, does it feel like Rachmaninoff? It looks like it does for the vocal line as well.
3: (laughs) A little bit. I haven't done a ton of Rachmaninoff in my career. (laughs) But there is definitely something that, especially what I've listened to, feels like the same heft and power to it Mm -hmm. um, that matches a lot of what Rachmaninoff did in his
0: vocal works. Yeah. So, for moving along, the next opus we have is Opus 24, the Hafis Liebeslieder.
2: This set of songs I am particularly interested in because three of the songs are orchestrated. I believe it's uh, selections one, four, and five, if you end up looking at the whole set of songs. It's very challenging to find songs orchestrated uh, for voice and and orchestra. So if anyone's looking for that type of music, please check these out. And there are six songs total in this set. Yes, yes. One of the selections that we chose to highlight is Die Brennenden Tulpen. This piece is, it feels impressionistic Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. And the, in the piano, it just, it keeps moving around. Like it's, it's never quite settled.
0: Yeah, I would say that the instability that, that we're seeing here, like, again, comes from the chromatics, because from from the section that we're doing, you can see it starts with an A in the bass, and then the next beat, we're on A flat, and then the next beat, we're on G, and then we're on F sharp, and we just keep moving, and we don't have
2: any sort of tonal center. Exactly.
0: And does, does the vocal line feel that way to you too?
2: Yeah, it's, this is definitely a singer who is more advanced because it's not one that you can easily grip onto. No takeaway melodies, if you were. It's more about the tonal painting that he's doing. <laughs> set of songs sort of touches on the topics of life, which leads us into the the final piece of this set.
0: Trauriger Frühling.
2: The title of the song alone sort of gives you an idea. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the sad spring. Yes. It's not usually a, an adjective we use with spring. No, a- absolutely not. The, the whole song cycle sort of leads up to this point, you know, the topic of, of death. The poetry touches on basically that the flowers bloom, but in the end the earth still holds on to you was not releasing you. You're not going to ever bloom again like the flowers. Aww. Just a a wonderful poetry and wonderful text and tone painting. Wow. Just looking at the pages, the
0: Brennan and Tulpen again looks to me like Rachmaninoff. But this last piece looks more simple.
2: Yes. And and the pieces are also um, in Polish and German. So if Polish is not something that you have access to uh, with a language coach, you can sing it in German. However, it is very interesting to maybe tackle these in the, in the native language and the poetry that it came from. Well, I would say, because if
0: I look at the very first page of this, it says Nachdichtungen von Hans Bietke. So I don't know whether that means that Hans Bietke wrote them originally in German,
1: hmm, because be Bietke to
0: me would be a German name. Hmm. So, and when you look at the music, the German is on top.
2: Interesting. So he may have um, included the Polish as a way for his own people to have access to them, not the other way around. I think so. Oh, I, cool. this I don't. This I would have to actually do more research into, which I did not. He
3: was constantly working, I know, with living translators, especially um, when you have all these different languages going in at once. And I know he worked with several people repeatedly. Um, in fact, one of the translators that he did eventually work with was also uh, another queer man. I believe he worked with him on the... James Joyce set
0: that that to me is also interesting he used James Joyce so he has some English songs as well
3: mm-hmm. he was working from a lot of different languages which I think was part of him trying to make the music of his country accessible because the music I do think sounds distinctly Polish um, especially as he moves later and starts adapting some more folk melodies as many composers did as uh, they got older
0: yeah yeah so we also have three berceuses, which, mm-hmm. oddly enough, have a French title, but they are definitely in Polish.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is an interesting little set. It's five pages long total, three little, tiny little melodies. Um, and this is one of the poems that I believe features text from uh, a friend of his who was queer. They are not something I would sing to my children. <laughs> 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 the children will look up and be like... What was that? <laughs> um, the one that we focused on was the third from the set I believe it's the largest circle in the night sky The big white circle of the moon mm-hmm. Which is a very unstable little piece It feels like you are just rocking between a few little like points that are uncomfortably close to each other In a way that when that final note comes around You're like, is this it? Is this the end? Did we land?
0: Right? We did not say the opus number for for the Hafiz leader, Hafiz Liebes leader, but that was opus 24. We're now somewhere in the 40s of his opus numbers, mm-hmm. right?
3: Yeah, so this is much later and much more him experimenting with atonality and um very advanced tonal centers.
0: I would say too, when people start working in atonality or polytonality, I always feel like we go for the hard stuff because we know it and we've heard of it. Mm-hmm. But something like this, when they're short, is a really nice way to enter into getting into a tonality.
3: Especially because the text of this is so beautiful in the Polish. He works so hard, um, I be- because I believe it is a setting of poems of a living poet, he works so hard to lean into the sh sounds, the sort of way that you would sh a child to sleep, which mm-hmm. is has such a unique sonic effect and really adds something.
0: My favorite episodes of last season was the, the final episode on vocalises.
2: And Shimonovsky has a vocalise. That he does. Yes. And it is a really interesting vocalise. In the beginning, when, when you first start listening to it, it almost, to me, it almost sounds like a violin maybe should play it. Mm-hmm. This was written in 1928. So late in his writing and late in his life. And at this point, he's starting to be influenced more on uh, folk music in Poland. So this is more melodic than his other pieces. Thank the Lord, because of it being a vocal (laughs) (laughs) But the rhythms are very interesting, and it definitely requires you to... Get in there and, and figure everything out. It's not something that you can look at it and sight read. Mm-hmm. Remember your, <laughs> your rhythmics class when freshman year. People. <laughs> you got to break it down <laughs> for sure. Uh, but there are some moments where the piano and the voice are duetting. Mm-hmm. And that always makes for um, a wonderful collaboration. So although it's a vocalese, it, it is very much collaborative with the piano. I think this would have been cool orchestrated, but I looked to see if it possibly was and it's not. um, So, but this is between voice and piano.
0: So as you can see, there is a wealth of repertoire from this composer. We're all saying that none of this feels like a young singer could handle it unless maybe if they're fluent in Polish already, (laughs) which is, you know, possible. But especially as we get into the later music, you're going to want to have a little more experience with rhythm with tonalities but like i said they can be a great exercise in learning atonal music because also the piano part is playing along with you in a lot of cases musical clips for this episode were performed by soprano tony marie Palmertree, tenor zachary dean smith and pianist ellen rissinger and recorded at
2: morningstar studios in norristown pennsylvania purchase information for the scores discussed in this episode are available in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find this podcast. Episodes drop every first, third, and fifth Thursday of each month. So Lit Song Lit is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about their network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org
1: podcasts.
4: Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional songmaking at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit.